Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome to the Danny Klinkscale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Insightful and witty commentary, probing interviews, and detours from the beaten path. Welcome to Kansas City Profiles presented by Easton Roofing and a very enjoyable, insightful, and actually very fascinating and uh, intrepid conversation with Jeff Lanza over two decades as a FBI agent, much of it here in Kansas City. He eventually became a spokesperson and linked with the media in his role as an FBI person, and of course he staked out in organized crime cases and white-collar crime cases and all of those things, and eventually turned that into a new career after the FBI as a spokesperson and an expert who appears on CNN and CNBC and Fox News and outlets like that. He also was the author of two books, Pistols to Press, Lessons on Communication from an FBI Agent, and Cybercrime, How to Stay Safe from Online Fraud and Identity. He speaks to groups all across the country on webinars and everything else, and he tells many, many enjoyable stories growing up as somebody who had a dream of being in the FBI and realized that dream. And we'll get this fascinating journey and story coming your way next on Kansas City Profiles, presented by Easton Roofing, in our great conversation with Jeff Lanza. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. Hey everybody, Joe Spiker, owner of Easton Roofing here. For almost 10 years, we've been a locally owned and operated family business. At Easton, we work on every job with one thing in mind, integrity matters. I grew up in central Kansas, was raised on the values of respecting hard work. We run our company every day on that value set. At Easton, we always make decisions based on the ethical, right thing for the customer. That's what integrity means to us. So if you have any questions about your roof, give me and my team a call. 913-257-5426. Easton Roofing. Integrity matters. Weather extremes are the rule, not the exception these days, and that means you need a trusted ally in dealing with your home's heating and cooling needs. That's why you should trust your HVAC needs to my friends at Dillon's Heating and Cooling. Jeff Dillon and his experienced and dedicated crew take pride in treating you like family. Honesty, integrity, and expertise are their calling card, and great value is as well. Right now, Dillon's offers you whole home bypass humidifiers for $100 off, normally $549, now only $449 installed. Also right now, they offer an inline water filter for the humidifier for an additional $75, as well as a low, low $69 heating tune-up. The comfort of your home is a vital part of the quality of your life, and Dillon's is there for you every step of the way. Get more details and information at Dillon'sHeatingAndCooling.com or call them at 913-214-1343. That's Dillon'sHeatingAndCooling.com, 913-214-1343. As the slogan says, they'll treat you like family. <laughs> 
Let's take a little time to make you feel better, maybe a whole lot better. Danny here to tell you that is certainly the case for me since I started seeing Dr. Brad Woodle and his talented team at Advanced Sports and Family Chiropractic and Acupuncture. With locations all around the metro area, you can easily find an office that is very convenient for you. I have benefited greatly from regular adjustments, acupuncture, decompression table, and cold laser, and my back is 100% better. In a welcoming and enjoyable environment, Advanced Sports and Family Chiropractic and Acupuncture gives you relief from pain that manifests itself in many ways. It's not just your back that can be the focus. For instance, research shows that spinal manipulation therapy, SMT, a centerpiece of chiropractic care, can be considered an effective treatment for tension headaches. And SMT provides superior relief for pain intensity, frequency, and disability when compared with other therapies. That's just another example of the wide range of services at ASFCA to improve your well-being and quality of life. Find out much, much more at asfca.com Danny and start feeling better soon. If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at danny at dannyclinkscale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Jeff, you grew up in Connecticut, and eventually we'll get to the fact that you really had a dream of what you eventually would do, but uh, what was it like uh, as a uh, burgeoning youth in uh, Connecticut? What was your family life like, and uh, what was young Jeff Lanza like? Uh, I came from a big Italian family in Connecticut. We had, we had, uh, I was say immigrated. I was just going to say we immigrated from New York. We, we actually was kind of immigrated from New York. We, we moved <laughs> to Connecticut when I was 12. So the majority of my, my very formative years leading up to wanting to become an FBI agent, you know, happened in Connecticut. Um, five boys in my family, four brothers. Uh, and we just, uh, we were a very close family and, uh, we, uh, I guess kind of the things that happened in my family uh, got me interested in, in law enforcement. Just uh, the fact that, well, for one thing, my dad owned a business. Uh, he owned a variety store and a Hallmark card store uh, in the same shopping center. And I worked in the variety store that my dad owned. We called it Jet Variety. And uh, I got exposure to all sorts of people in there. Uh, some not some not so nice. And in my dad's card store, they used to have a common occurrence. People would come in and and uh, try to flim flam the people working there. Um, generally, uh, employees that just got flustered, they'd hand them a $20 bill and, for a small purchase, you know, and then as they're making changes, oh, by the way, can you change this $100 bill? And they get it all mixed up and ended up, the person walked away with $100, at, you know, from the cash register. And the stuff, the people shoplifting from my dad's store. And I just, you know, I was always brought up as a Catholic honest person, you know, God fearing like many people. And, and I just thought it was just so wrong. And that kind of got me interested in, in what it'd be like to, to do investigations of people that, that were involved in wrongdoing at a much, much bigger level, of course. And at the same time, I was watching a TV show called the FBI, which used to be on uh, ABC every Mm -hmm. Sunday night, watch that show as a kid. And I thought these guys are the coolest in the world because that was J. Edgar Hoover's public relations machine, <laughs> that TV show. It's basically an arm of the FBI. <laughs> and um, but but I I just love the characters. I love how they. I know it sounds corny, but how they they they, they track down bad people and they put them in jail. And I said, you know, that's a job for me. And all this while while that stuff was going on in my dad's store, and 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 I, I just it's, that's what originally got me interested in it. 
Not to mention the fact that my family used to watch The Godfather every Christmas, <laughs> which got me interested in investigating the mob. So all of those put together made me want to become an FBI agent. Besides uh, this interest, uh, first of all, where did you stack up in the family with all these boys? Yeah, uh, second. So my brother uh, had an older brother, three years older than me. I was number two. And then there was three, you know, three that followed that followed me. And what did you like to do growing up, a regular boyhood? First of all, where did you live in the city before you moved out to Connecticut? Well, I lived in a suburb in, of New York City, uh, Mount Vernon, which is Westchester right. County. Right. Just a hand, you know, stone's throw from New York City. My dad used to work in the city as an accountant, and he commuted in on the train every day, like a lot of people. And um, so um, he lost his job. His, his, his magazine that he worked for folded up in um, – uh, in the late 1960s, and uh, and he had to find something to do, and and uh, he decided he was going to buy some businesses, and he bought them in Connecticut, and it was moved about moved us about 30 miles across the state line into Connecticut. And uh, what I did as a kid, uh, growing up, I liked to play baseball, um, ride my bicycle around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't have a heck of a lot of hobbies, uh, but uh, hang out with my friends, and then I did a lot. I worked a lot at my dad's store. I mean, I was one of the family, and you worked in your dad's business, and that's what you did. And uh, I didn't have a lot of time for for much other stuff than, than working and going to school. My dad was very, very much um, strongly uh, influenced uh, all of us about how important school was, and you had to go to college and earn your degree because, you know, that was what we did in our family. So, But besides working in the store and going to school, I didn't have a lot of other hobbies except what I just mentioned. When it was coming time to decide to go to college, uh, what did you, what was your, you, you already had these, these thoughts in your head, but uh, I don't, you didn't act on them initially. Where did you decide to go to college and how did that process work? Yeah, well, um, you know, criminal justice was a major that I thought I'd be interested in, in because of the FBI thing. And, but I knew I might not get into the FBI. I said, well, would I want to be a police officer? Maybe. State police, local police, I don't know. Those were on my mind, too. And I thought, for me, um, I wanted to major in criminal justice. That would give me a lot of options in, as a law enforcement, uh, for a law, law enforcement career. So um, I looked around at different schools. And University of New Haven in Connecticut had a really strong criminal justice program. And uh, so I applied there, and I got in. And um, I, I went there for, uh, for my undergraduate degree. And then on to where? <laughs> so then as I'm, as I'm getting ready to graduate, you know, I'm looking at the FBI. Of course, they don't accept people that have to be at least 23 years old. You got to have three years of work experience. And, you know, I wasn't qualified and I, I knew that going, going in. So, so what do I do in the meantime? And I looked at police and I went through all the stuff. I, I interviewed with the state police and uh, I, I don't mean interviewed. I, I went and did a ride, a ride along with the state police and the local police and um while well, i was in college and i just decided you know i, I don't want to do that um mm-hmm. and so then i said what do i do now until i can maybe become an fbi agent and uh, somebody suggested well, why don't you go get a business degree and uh you know get your mba and then see what uh see what comes after that so that's what i did and i followed um my uh, friend's advice he said you ought to look at university of texas they have a really good mba program and uh you may not even want to work for the FBI after you get some job offers down in Texas. So if you interview down there, there's a lot of opportunities in the oil business and so forth. And so I went to get my MBA in Texas, moved out of the Northeast. Absolutely loved Texas, loved living there, 
loved the big open spaces. Everything was new versus in Connecticut and New York. Everything was old. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so this, the, the MBA program is a lot of fun. Met a lot of nice people there. Interviewed on campus and um, got a job with Xerox Corporation as a computer systems analyst. Um, and uh, that was really – I didn't know it at the time. But that was how I was going to be able to get in the FBI because the FBI wanted people with computer experience. And after seven years at Xerox, that set me up perfectly for a job with the Bureau. I didn't plan it that way. In fact, I thought maybe I want to be in business and not in law enforcement anymore. But then, you know, after seven years of being in the business world with Xerox, I decided, you know, what do I really want to do? I had to look back and, you know, basically, you know, look back at your life and say, you know, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Do you want to be you know, programming computers and managing people and sell copiers. And <laughs> what do you want to do something really, really important? Uh, and that's when I applied to the FBI. And they liked me because I had this experience in computers. Plus, I had the MBA. Um, and I was a perfect candidate, really, for, for them uh, at the time with their needs. When you decided to make that move, and you did make the move, and you were accepted, what was the sense of excitement for you? This was something that you had long since thought that you wanted to do. I was I was so excited. It took a year to get in the FBI. From the time I filled out the initial application to the time I went to Quantico was almost one year to, to the day. And um, so during that year period, I mean, there were ups and downs. And there were times where I wouldn't think I was going to get in. They kept asking for more information. I had to go through different tests. I had to do, uh, you know, the physical tests, the, the, the uh, medical physical plus physical fitness tests, plus, you know, all the exams they give you, the polygraph exam. And at any step in the way, you know, I could have fallen out for whatever reason, as a lot of people do. So I was very nervous over a year uh, of doing that. And, you know, I thought, well, what if I don't get in the FBI? We have to stay in this crummy job at Xerox. <laughs> it wasn't a crummy job. No. It wasn't a crummy job, but it would have been a different thing. And, and by that time, I was thinking to myself, you know what, I'm going to be – as I was getting closer and closer, I said, I'm going to be an FBI agent. And I said, this is my lifelong dream. I can't believe it's actually going to happen. And so the excitement just built up and built up and built up. And then uh, finally, I got to the point where um, I knew it was going to happen. I just, you know, just waiting for a space to open up in one of their classes. And it did. And it happened to open up on, <laughs> on two weeks after uh, I, I was planning on getting married. So... <laughs> So I talked to my would-be wife at the time, uh, and she, and I said, listen, I can wait. We can get married. We can go on, on the honeymoon, uh, and I can go into class, or I can go before. And it was a lot, we had a lot of different choices at that time. Turned out we actually moved up the wedding so we can get married, have a decent honeymoon, and then we can I can go to the FBI right after that to their training academy. Uh, so that's what I did. How did you meet your wife? I met her in uh, San Antonio, Texas. I was working there with Xerox, and uh, she was finishing up her undergraduate degree at Trinity University. And uh, I was down there working for Xerox, and uh, we had uh, uh, some mutual acquaintances, and we met up that way. And then uh, we dated for quite a while before before I finally popped the, the question. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, do you remember your first date, or was this a love at first sight type of thing, or what was the, what was it like? Uh, first date was at this really cool Italian restaurant in San Antonio called Paisano's. Um, and we always talk about that today. We went back there many times you know, over the years, but um, it was one of my favorite restaurants, a little hole in the wall at the time. Now they have like five locations and they're like massively overbuilt and gigantic cavernous restaurants. But this was a little hole in the wall place, served the best little Italian food. And, and, um, uh, 
yeah, and she's not Italian and I am. And so <laughs> it was kind of an interesting experience for her to be, uh, not to go to an Italian restaurant. I mean, that's no big deal, but to be exposed to the different culture and the different types of, uh, things that I had, you know, grown up with in my family, the Sunday afternoon dinners that my mom made and you know, all the traditions we had watching the Godfather at Christmas. <laughs> and, and you know, she's a Midwestern girl and, you know, she's, that was, you know, very, everything was different for, for her different kind of family. She had five kids in her family too. So we came from kind of interesting or, or similar backgrounds, but, but much different in terms of the culture. So you get into the FBI, your dream is being starting to be realized. What was the, uh, I don't know, entry level work for the FBI for you? Well, I have to tell you one, one thing before, before I go on to the entry level work, um, you know, you go through the FBI training Academy and it's, it's meant to be, you know, pretty tough. And some mm-hmm. people wash out, uh, some people, um, you know, excel at, at everything. And I was, I wasn't, I wasn't like, I wouldn't put myself at the top of the list of excelling and everything, but I certainly wasn't going to wash out after all the time and desire I had to get in the FBI. So, but there was one particular instance of a story that happened, um, that, uh, that, that really affected me for kind of my rest of my career with the FBI. So I'm not a gun person. A lot of people think when you're in the FBI, you must must love guns. Mm-hmm. Well, no, not really. I never had a gun before that. And uh, I shot guns when I was a police explorer, you know, way back when I was in like 10th grade. But I wasn't really a gun person. So, you know, I got introduced to using guns on the firearms range and, and I became more comfortable with the weapons that we were going to use. A shotgun was new to me too. Uh, but, uh, you know, many people use shotguns for hunting, no big deal. But I never even touched a shotgun before. And uh, I was on the, the firing line and getting ready to, to use the shotgun for the first time. And my gun jammed uh, with a load that I had in there. Um, and uh, everyone else had finished shooting. And, and uh, I was standing on the line and my other 47 classmates are behind me. And they're all done shooting. And I didn't clear the jam properly. And this instructor came up to me and really starts chewing me out in front of my, all my classmates. And what's the matter? I go, I got a jam. He goes, clear the jam, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's just very embarrassing. And uh, no big deal in the scheme of things. But that's what I learned one thing that day. So I went back to my room with what we call a red-handled weapon, which is a gun that can't shoot, right? It's a, it's, right. It's a gun, exactly like the gun you carry, but it's, it's disabled from shooting. I can use it for practicing loading, for practicing, um, you know, handling the weapon and so forth. And I went back to my room and I practiced over and over again, you know, loading, loading the, uh, the weapon, the shotgun. So that would never happen to me again. And I'd be able to do it quickly. And if it jammed, I'd be able to clear it quickly. Because I knew that in real life, if that ever happened, I could have been killed out there or, or got somebody else on my team killed. And I became so proficient at that and excellent at that. And I learned from that day, sometimes these minor setbacks, you know, as in life with most mm-hmm. people, can really be something that has a silver lining and improves you. And I think, uh, you know, in my career, when I used a shotgun, I never shot anyone. Uh, it's a question I often get asked, by the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I knew that if I was in a situation with a shotgun, I'd be so comfortable with that because of what happened on, on the range that day. And uh, I think that we could take a lesson that I think for all of us with anything, anytime where we fail. Sometimes we become better because of that. And now, anyway. let, now, yeah, now let's get to the entry level part of it and your uh, to start the process of starting to climb the ladder. Yes. Yeah, so so I, I, I wanted to work organized crime cases, you know, from the Godfather movie that we used to watch as it's growing up in my family's strange tradition. Um, but uh, so luckily I got to the FBI office, immediately signed to a wiretap on a mobster's phone. 
Um, and so I'm getting my hand in some organized crime cases. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that happened was kind of funny. It wasn't I wasn't on this particular wire, but we had other agents sitting on it. And what happened was Tony gets a call from Joe as we listen to Tony's phone. Right. Tony gets a call from Joe and Tony says, Joe, I'm really glad you called. And Joe goes, yeah, why? Tony goes, I got a little problem. I think the FBI is tapping my phone. And Joe goes, well, what are you going to do about it? And Tony goes, well, I got a new number. So without any common sense, Joe goes, okay, good. Give me the new number. <laughs> and so Tony goes, well, wait, I better not do it on the phone. Tony gets some common sense. I'll meet you for lunch. I'll give it to you then. And Joe says, well, I can't meet you for lunch. Tony says, I'll give you the number over the phone right now, but I'll give it to you backwards. So he gave him the digits, seven digits in reverse order. And what did the FBI do? We got our best cryptologist on that one right away. <laughs> we had it decoded in six months flat in the, with the powerful computers we had in 1988. But, you know, I, 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 uh, I, we experienced that type of thing. And on a lot of cases that you work, stupid criminal stories. But there's a lot of smart criminals out there, too. And, uh, you know, working cases against the mob or really any formidable criminal organization. You know, today you have hackers. Um, you got white collar criminals, um, you got terrorist organizations, you got gangs, you know, there's going to be the easy catches. There's also going to be the difficult ones. And to put somebody in jail takes a lot of effort and it should be that way. You know, uh, it's not like you can just go pick somebody up and throw them in jail. So, um, but that was the challenge of the job, you know, building the evidence, whether it's an organized crime case or any case, uh, doing the investigation, getting the evidence, presenting it to a grand jury, getting the indictment taking it to court, presenting it to a jury in a way that they can understand it and getting a conviction and, and putting bad people in jail, which is why I went to the FBI to begin with. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. Joe Spiker, owner of Easton Roofing here. Well, it stormed. The last thing you want to mess with is dealing with it, but now you're stuck with dozens of people knocking on your door, telling you everything they think you want to hear. Do not trust your biggest asset to a company that lies dormant until it storms, only to change their name and wither away after their substandard work is complete. Call Easton Roofing for a free roof evaluation. 913-257-5426. 913-257-5426. Easton Roofing. Integrity matters. It's time to tell you about a great opportunity to improve your retirement outlook by using the outstanding services of 401k USA. What the experts at 401k USA bring to you is an overlay of your current 401k plan that manages it in a far more proactive and responsive way. Too many retirement plans can be restrictive, but 401k USA brings far more flexibility to your plan to capitalize on opportunities and avoid downturns. It's simple and easy to find out much more about all the details on taking a close look at what the friendly experts at 401k USA can do for you. You can create more retirement wealth and a richer lifestyle by visiting 401kusa.org today or by texting to 816-844-6236. That's 401kusa.org or text to 816-844-6236 to find out much more. Danny here to dish, as it were, on the 23rd Street Brewery in Lawrence. A recent lunch with my friend Matt Llewellyn, the owner, just provided a reminder of what a great spot it is to visit when you are in Lawrence. I was on the go, so just had time for a simple salad and pretzel, and that was absolutely delicious. My wife had a more elaborate 
avocado salad with salmon on a separate visit, and she just raved about it. The 23rd Street Brewery can be that varied with a great menu that rises far above standard bar fare. And of course, they also provide great atmosphere and brew their fantastic beers. It's a fabulous place to catch a game with a great array of TVs that are constantly updated. Matt and his friendly staff go out of their way to make your experience special. Fine food with a huge menu, great beers, and a great spot for fun with friends. The 23rd Street Brewery has it all. Make sure you do what I do and grab a growler or two to take home. The 23rd Street Brewery at 23rd and Castle in Lawrence. See you there. Cinematic Visions has been an affordable solution for professional media production in Kansas City since 2003, offering award-winning video production and creation, as well as a wide array of digital and social media management services. From planning, scripting, filming, editing, and post-production to delivering your product to a watching world, Cinematic Visions will provide professional and affordable services for you and your business with the necessary return on investment to make it all worthwhile. Cinematic Vision's goal is to unlock the power of storytelling through video and a strong online presence for your company. Beyond the numbers, they want to inspire and evoke your clients to feel and act. Let my friends at Cinematic Visions embed your brand where it belongs, in your customers' minds. You can find them online at cinematicvisions.com or with a quick phone call at 816-600-6300. If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at danny at dannyclinkscale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Jeff Lanza is our guest, longtime FBI agent, many of those years here in Kansas City, and now a person who often appears on major networks talking about all kinds of different things. He's an author and a presenter, as we mentioned in the uh, opening of this particular podcast. How did the, as you, as you developed into it and you immediately got into an area that you were interested in, but how did the workings of being an investigator stack up to what you thought when you were growing up and dreamed about? Well, one experience I had when I wanted to be an FBI agent back in, um, in the days when I worked in my dad's store, that Jet Variety store, there's an FBI agent that came in the store that lived in the area in Connecticut. And, he, and um, I found out who he, what he did told him I want to be in the FBI and uh, of course I'm like 17 at the time and he goes uh, you know it's really a boring job you know and and so instead of encouraging me and saying yeah you know it's a great institution you'll love the FBI I I should I should you know you should consider it and and do this to further your chances of getting instead he says it's a boring job and so I had that that lived with me for a while and then when I got to the FBI you know I found it really wasn't boring Um, I mean you do different things every day. Um, these cases can be very exciting, even white collar crime cases, which can be number crunching, you know, lots of records, looking at records. But the real interest is, you know, trying to solve crimes, trying to figure out not only who did it, but what they did, how they did it, how they try to cover it up. And to me, that was exciting. It was never boring. I don't think I had one boring day in the FBI, <laughs> maybe sitting on a wiretap of a mobster's phone, or anybody's phone when you're, you know, you're assigned to a wiretap and, and no one's doing anything. The phone's not ringing. You're not even, you're not getting calls. Um, maybe that's boring. But in terms of active investigations, and I don't think I had a bad day or a boring day in the FBI. So he was wrong about that. And uh, it did stack up to what I thought it was going to be. Now, when you talk about television and the FBI and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., who was the quintessential J. Edgar Hoover's FBI agent, marketing the FBI on this television show. 
it wasn't like you solve crimes in 60 minutes and you know, all of a sudden at the end there's this exciting shootout and and uh, you barely miss getting killed. I mean, it's not like that. I don't want it to be like that. But um, in terms of stacking up to the everyday experience of of finding what somebody did, proving they did it, and then you know having to pay the consequences for that, you know, to me it did stack up. How did you find your way to Kansas City? So the FBI moved me to Kansas City, and there's an interesting story behind that because the FBI uh, assigns you randomly, supposedly randomly to uh, one of its 56 field offices in the United States. Um, and I could have been sent anywhere. Um, but my wife and I, we were, neither of us were from San Antonio. We liked San Antonio, which is where we were when I joined the FBI. But we, we had no ties there, no family there. And we both looked at the list of cities and we said, you know, we'll pretty much go anywhere. My wife is very open to it. I was open to it. And so when I got those orders that day, uh, as they call you up in front of the room of your class with your classmates and happened to be on April 1st, 1988, April fool's day is the day I got my orders to go to, mm-hmm. to the city. I was going to be assigned to, <laughs> I think they planned it that way. Anyway. So I come up in front of the class. I open the envelope. I'm supposed to read to the class. This office I've been assigned to. It's a very emotional day for most people because mm-hmm. this is where they could spend three years, five years, 20 years or longer. Just depends on the situation. At the time, they used to transfer people very often, but uh, I came in, they stopped transferring people, so I got to spend my whole career in Kansas City. So I'm up in front of the uh, the room. I read the assignment. I'm going to Kansas City. Now, it wasn't one of my top choices. I didn't know anything about Kansas City. I would have loved to gone to, you know, San Diego, <laughs> uh, you know, um, Phoenix, you know, maybe some of the Sunbelt cities, whatever. Kansas City was not on the top of my list. So I read it. I'm like, I'm like indifferent. I'm like, okay, it's a city. It's it's going to be fine. And so somebody starts cheering in the class. Like, oh, Kansas City, you're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. Well, this guy was from Kansas City, and he was moving somewhere else. And and he goes, you're gonna love Kansas City. Another guy starts chiming in. He's from Lawrence, uh, Kansas, and he's chiming. He's going, yeah, you're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. It's a great place. And so I sit down and I start cheering. I'm clapping. I'm going, yeah, I'm going to Kansas City. I'm going to Kansas City. And I sit down. And I think, what the hell am I cheering about? I don't want to go to Kansas City. <laughs> So I call my wife that night to tell her the assignment. You know, she's got a stake in this too. <laughs> and and she, I go, I got my assignment. And she goes, wait, wait, don't tell me. Is it north or south of the Mason-Dixon line? <laughs> and I go, I don't know. I, <laughs> I got to get out of the map. And uh, anyway, so, uh, so we got there. And I uh, told you the mobs cases and the other cases we worked in. And um you know, I didn't want to move, and the FBI actually stopped transferring people about 1992 or so when they ran out of money uh, during a budget crisis, and uh, and they it, it had it, it turned out that I didn't have to ever be transferred. I could spend my whole career in Kansas City, and and I ended up doing that, and and for me it was it was a good thing. And you obviously have ended up doing a, a variety of different things. Tell me about how you decide how long you're going to stay in the FBI or your path to, you know, not retirement as it were, but to yeah. dab, you know, moving into other areas related to your work from the years in the FBI. I, you know, I plan to go in the FBI, be an agent for, you know, maybe four or five years and then try and move up into management and go to Washington maybe and, you know, and, and maybe be head of a field office. I thought that, I thought that would have been a nice little career path and, you know, if you work hard enough and you and you do the right things, you, you can do that. Um, but a couple of years into my career, 
about 1990 or so, um, someone uh, suggested that I be a spokesman for the FBI. And, uh, you know, in the Kansas City office, you know, in other words, the media calls want something, you you go talk to them, right? Because nobody else can. And uh, I said, I don't know if I'll be good at that job. I mean, I don't have any experience. Um, And uh, I went into the head of the FBI office uh, in Kansas City. And by that time, I wanted the job because somebody said, you know, suggested I might be good at it. And I asked the guy, I go, somebody thought I should put in for this this job as spokesman. And he goes, well, what kind of experience do you have? Journalism? No. Communication? No. Uh, have you ever, um, you know, written anything? No. Uh, I go, I'm taking a creative writing course at a local um, community college. He goes, all right, we'll give you a shot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, and so I, I started to like that job. And I liked dealing with the media. Um, and I did that for 18 years. And that became a path that um, uh, drove a lot of my decisions on whether we should move or I, I don't know. It, it, it seems kind of silly now that I look back at it, but I liked that job so much and the everyday excitement. Every time there was something going on in the Kansas City FBI office that the media had learned about, uh, I was involved in it. So it wasn't like I'm just working my own cases and now I'm involved in everybody's cases and I'm involved in these real exciting kidnappings are not great but they're exciting. Bank robberies are not great, but it's exciting. You know, people that, um, you know, commit terrible crimes and that require immediate reaction from the FBI. You know, it's not great for what happened, but it certainly is energizing to be able to be involved in that kind of stuff. So that was me every day. And um, I didn't want to give that up by moving somewhere else. So that was that was your job. You were the yeah. spokesperson for the FBI. It, it wasn't like you were working cases still. It, your job was media liaison, as it were. Uh, oh no, I was working cases okay. too. You wear a lot of hats in the FBI. Okay. So that was a full. That wasn't a full time job. The media. It was considered a part time job, and uh, but it ended up being full time for most of those eighteen years. But I still worked cases too. Not as many cases. How did you decide that eighteen to twenty years was enough? Uh, well, um, I had my, I met my minimum retirement age. I came in when I was 31 and I had turned 51. And so I was eligible to retire. Um, I had 20 years in also maybe eligible to, to retire. And, um, and I, you have to go out at 57, you know, so I had six more years where I could have stayed in, mm-hmm. but there were some things happening at the time in, in my career. So I, I had done, you know, all this public you know, public stuff on on the TV. I was on TV all the time. People recognized me. They knew who I was. And I'd often get calls directly to, to me. Hey, Jeff, we have saw you on TV. Hey, can you come talk to my Rotary Club? Can you talk to this Lions Club? Can you talk to my school about internet safety? You know, and um, sometimes if they didn't call me directly, the, the, the calls would get filtered to me. And I kind of became the go-to person for public outreach and I was doing a lot of speaking and I was never really, uh, that was not my background. Uh, I never took a speech you know, course. I never took a, any type of public, uh, presentation, you know, course, um, you know, or anything like that. But I, I learned just by doing it and being in front of people all the time for without getting paid for it with no risk really, except embarrassing yourself. <laughs> but, um, I did that for a long time, seven, eight years of the last part of my career. And um, that gave me a lot of experience, but also a lot of contacts where people were suggesting to me, hey, um, you should go out on the speech circuit and here's who will hire you to speech and they'll pay you this much. And so 
I knew I was going to retire at some point. 57 maximum was going to be my age of retirement. Here I was at 51, but it was an opportunity to uh, not to test the waters. And it was 2008, and just then, the, basically, the the market collapsed. The, collapsed. The the um, our economy collapsed, and people weren't hiring speakers anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. I said, uh, okay, maybe I'm going to go find a job sweeping floors at McDonald's or something. But um, all joking aside, uh, it's they still hired me to speak. And um, and once you speak at one of them, you do a good job. That leads to more gigs and more gigs. And and it's been like that for 14 years now. So it turned out to be, um, in terms of the amount of uh, you know engagements I've had, it's way more than I ever would have expected. You've done a lot of consulting on movie and television projects, including with director, the famed director Ang, Ang Lee in Ride with yeah. the Devil. That was 1999. What is that yeah. work like? Uh, it's very, it's, it's interesting. Um, so all the calls would come to me as a spokesman. Anyone that had anything to do with the media. So you're talking about Kansas City Star, KMBZ Radio, um, Fox, it wasn't Fox calling a lot then, but just say CNBC or whoever would call, um, including people who are writing books, who are making movies about the FBI, um, maybe about some case in Kansas City, which we have a lot of cases in Kansas City. And so the calls would come to me. So they, they had my name, my contact information. And then uh, from time to time, you know, I get those calls directly from movie producers and, and, you know, say, Hey, I want you to tell me if we're doing this the right way, how does this play out in real life? And uh, what are the eyes of a terrorist look like? That's what Ang Lee asked. He's making a movie ride with the devil, uh, which is a story about, about the, uh, during the civil uh, war Quantrell's raid on Lawrence, Kansas, where they pretty much wiped out the whole city. Right. And he's making a movie about that. And, the eyes of a Quantrell was basically a terrorist, right? Mm -hmm. um, and his, what do the eyes of a terrorist look like? So he wanted me to tell him, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. So it was interesting. And, and to be honest with you, I put that on my bio that I, because he's a right. he's Academy Award winning movie director, um, and because and most people that read it don't even get his name they'll introduce me jeff lanza oh and jeff is um has not only been an fbi agent for 20 years he also consulted with uh, uh with movie director Ange Lee. oh jeez <laughs> it's so awful. i was kind of rolling my eyes i don't even know who he is and most people don't it doesn't even click with him um but it didn't click with me when i met with the guy uh in, in 1999 he hadn't won any, any movie awards yet hadn't won the academy award yet but still he was an up-and-coming star as a movie director and i didn't know about it at the time until i read some stories about him afterwards i said hey that's the guy that i sat down with and talked to about the eyes of the tourists um yeah so that's exciting stuff and then the latest thing that i did before um uh or well after i retired but uh was, was a, a, a section uh, or show on um, Netflix. It's now on Netflix called America's Greatest Secrets. And basically it's a show about secrets of the government. And one section is about the FBI or one, one, one uh, segment, I should say one of their shows. And they interviewed me and I, I was like in it, like constantly being quoted in this Netflix doc, Netflix uh, is not a documentary, but a show about the, uh, about the FBI. And uh, I've come in there more than anybody else uh, that they interviewed. And so 
uh, I put it in my bio. I said, hey, I was in a Netflix documentary about the FBI. <laughs> People, wow, that's really cool. But uh, yeah, and that was fun too, just talking about my, my perspective on the FBI. You've also written two books, and you could have written, you know, you said you took creative writing. You could have written a book, or you could have written a novel for that matter, but you could yeah. have, couldn't have written a book more about yourself and your career and cases. Instead, yeah. that your books more focus on, you know, sort of assisting people in, you know, defending themselves against the different types of crime. How yeah. did you decide to go in that direction? Well, you know, you, I've always heard, you know, writing a novel, I think everybody wants not everyone, but a lot of people want to write, want to write a novel, you know, probably FBI agents, CIA agents and government employees want to come out and write a, write some, some novel or, you know, or, or tell all that type of thing. I wanted to um, uh, write what I knew, right? And that's what they tell you when you take, you take any kind of writing course, write what you know, right? And so what I knew was two things. One was um, communication. Right, so dealing with the press for 18 years, how to communicate effectively, I think, was what I learned in that time frame. And so I had a choice. I was going to write a book on identity theft and cybercrime, which uh, was my next area of expertise, <laughs> or or, um, uh, or the book on communication. And I just said, let me start writing one day and see if I can even write, see if I can make this into a chapter. And I just started writing about the time I was on Larry King Live and did an interview with him. And that became a chapter in my book. And that was on communication, not on cybercrime. So that's the book I wrote first. And um, and then after a couple of years, as I'm doing more and more speaking, I'm not speaking as much on communication. I'm speaking on cybercrime and identity theft. So no one's going to buy my book. And I go to a speech on cybercrime and say, hey, I got a book on communication. So I had a book on cybercrime. And that was my next book. And But it was mostly designed to help help people and also give you credibility on the speech circuit. Um, that's why speakers write books, you know. Why do you, uh, what do you think is your approach toward bringing a presentation in 30 to 40 to 45 minutes? I saw you speak and uh, you, it was really engaging and interesting. It was probably a little shorter maybe than sometimes you speak. Mm -hmm. But what is, what is your goal going in and what is your approach going in that you uh, feel like you've decided to bring after doing it so often yeah well I, I think i have i have three goals when i when i do when i develop a speech and go up in front of any group first of all i want to inform people give them something they can use uh and, and take home i want to uh make them uh entertain them a little bit and then uh encourage them or or motivate them you know to make at least one change in their life that's going to help them stay stay safer so you know i can do it i can do tell funny fbi stories um the whole time but that's just comedy and it doesn't really help anybody so but i try to weave those stories into a greater context right so um uh, when i when i go to talk about identity theft and cybercrime you know I'll, i talk about five or six things that people can do to stay safe and if they just implement one of those things like not clicking on links and attachment or attachments and emails that they get from people they don't know if they stop doing that um, they'll save themselves from a lot of hassle, maybe malware on their computer and stuff like that. Um, and then, and so if I can, you know, just motivate them to do make that one change, because no, no, they're not going to do everything you say. No one ever really does. Um, so get them to do one thing or so. And, and then the entertainment part is important because for two reasons. One, it makes people happy. They engages them a little bit more. So they pay closer attention and, um, and then if you can tie it to a learning point, 
then they're really going to be more likely to remember that learning point, you know? So I try to tie it, whatever entertainment I have, I try to sometimes weave it in like the story I may have, that you may have recalled Mm -hmm. when you heard me uh, was about, um, you know, the time I was answering the phone and people thought it was a wiretap phone and people thought I was a bookie. I was actually an FBI agent answering a bookie's phone. And um, I guess when I give my speeches, about cybercrime and identity theft. I mean, the point is, you get, you get a robocall and someone on the phone says, hey, this is the Social Security Administration and there's a problem with your account. We need your information. And people give it to them. And uh, we want your Social Security number. We're verifying that. Well, they already, already have it if it's the Social Security Administration. So when I tell that funny story, I always say, hey, when you're on the phone talking to somebody, you don't know who you're talking to. You don't give them information. You're, you don't give some guy on the phone your bets because it, it, it could be an FBI agent you're talking to. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and that's exactly <laughs> what it was, yes. Uh, right. Well, well, through this journey for you, you obviously realized a dream and then incorporated that dream into sort of another dream. It must be kind of, a, you know, you're hardly ready to hang it up or anything like that. But uh, that's yeah. really, you know, that Ang Lee movie is, uh, has the word ride in it, but uh, it's been quite a ride for you. <laughs> it's been a ride, an unexpected ride. I never thought I'd be a professional speaker that anyone would pay me to go up in front of an audience. Um, and, you know, actually the first times I ever did it, I was I was not good in front of an audience. I was nervous and, you know, I, I, I screwed up and, and I thought I'd never want to do it again. So this isn't the last place I expected I would be, you know, doing this as a full-time for a living uh, in front of, you know, literally hundreds of people in an audience on webinars, virtual presentations. And they have, I did one this morning that had 1300 people on it, but I can't see them. So I, I wouldn't be able to know how many people are in the audience. <laughs> so I don't get nervous anymore because I know the topic and that's the key. If anyone was out there thinking about being a speaker, you got to know your information. If you know the topic and you can engage people with some humor, um, and, and, uh, learn how to tell things that make people more interested, then you're going to be successful at it. And uh, I think that's what I've kind of learned over the years to do. And you can watch an audience and you can get the feedback. You see if they're paying attention. You see when they pay attention, when they look up, when they smile, and you know that's a good point. You just did something good and now I'm going to do that again next time and maybe we find it so it's a little bit better. And that's, so that's how I've learned. This podcast was made possible by our great sponsors like Easton Roofing, presenting sponsor of Kansas City Profiles at the Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Easton Roofing, where integrity matters. We hope you enjoyed the latest Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Come back soon for something fresh and new. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.